You had a cancelled trip, and my yes. trip is still on, but I'm just not in the mood to pack. So, uh, <laughs> oh no. So, I, I guess we should just do a pod. <laughs> Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the health savings account podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on July 6, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host and Ted Cruz lookalike. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, applying the golden rule of health insurance, uh, University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. A quick reminder that if you like the show, you can become a patron by just going to twill.com and clicking on uh, patron page link. We'd appreciate it if you can throw some digital coins into our proprietary fountain. Frank, before we start the show proper, I just wanted to to pause for a moment and acknowledge the passing of longtime University of Texas health law professor uh, John Robertson. I first met him in the late 80s. We were on a panel together and, you know, I felt like that uh, proverbial idiot sitting next to sort of the (laughs) genius, which is unfortunately something that I often uh, feel but he was so kind and interested and smart and and such a nice person and we've sort of kept in touch and and used to send me his stuff when it came out and so on and i saw him just uh, a couple of months two three months ago at the stanford thing that hank Greeley put on and as usual he was uh, humble charming and brilliant gave a wonderful talk and it's a it's a great loss to the health law academy if you ever get around to to writing the history of academic health law his was a major voice that opened up that intersection between medical ethics and health law, uh, particularly uh, his work on assisted reproduction. And I I just didn't want to not uh, recognize a a really great man. So uh, peace, John. That's a very kind tribute, Nick. And yes, I was very saddened to hear of the passing of John. And um, I really am glad that you and uh, our partners at Petrie Flom have also uh, posted an obituary. And um, I hope that our listeners will learn more about his work, which was very important. Yes, indeed. In this lightning of all lightning round episodes, I thought we'd start with a case, an issue that's actually come up a few times in our discussion uh, with uh, Lydia Nicholas, for example. I remember it came up and just recently uh, uh, Claudia Pagliari was, was alluding to it. And that's the relationship in the UK between the Royal Free Hospital Trust, which is a a big chunk of the NHS presence in London, in the UK. And it was the relationship between Royal Free and Google DeepMind, now Alphabet DeepMind, um, that when when the stories started coming out, and Frank, I remember you bringing up uh, the source. Was it New Scientist that did such a great series? Yes, and this, uh, uh, someone um, at Hal Hod, I believe Hal Hod Lipson and uh, Julia Powells did a yes. lot of uh, yeah. both investigation and reporting on the issue. Yeah, that came up, and then we we heard a little bit later that there'd been a re-upping between the the two parties. Anyway, uh, what came out last week was a um, a ruling essentially from um, Elizabeth Denham, the UK Information Commissioner, um, uh, basically taking Royal Free to task after. Uh, 
an investigation about uh, their failure uh, to comply with the UK's data protection laws. Um, uh, and uh, uh, they are now uh, requesting that the hospital trust uh, that shared data, huge amounts of data with DeepMind. Um, the controversy, if you remember at the beginning, was when we first started hearing about it, that there seemed to be an inordinate amount of data that didn't seem necessarily particularly relevant to the very specific targeted inquiry that apparently was going on into a particular uh, disease. But anyway, the trust has now been asked to establish a proper legal basis under the Data Protection Act for uh, the project and for any future projects, uh, set out how it will comply with its duty of confidence to patients in any future trial, complete a privacy impact assessment and improve uh, transparency and generally audit uh, the trial and share that with the information commissioner. So uh, it doesn't have any penalties attached. It's more like um, a compliance uh, program. But this for the UK and for the UK ICO is, I think, more than just a slap on the wrist for Royal Free. It's a very interesting development, I think. I mean, I think that there is clearly a shot across the bow here in terms of trying to require a lot more front-loading of the ethical and legal deliberations about exactly what are the bases of these type of information transfers. Um, and I think it's also interesting just from a comparative law perspective to think if this had happened at a U.S. hospital, you know, where with, with say, no business associate agreement or no um, other sorts of safeguards, what would have happened? Would there have been sort of a, first of all, would it have been detected? Um, and, so, uh, and perhaps it certainly would have because of the level of publicity around these sorts of things. It seems as though they're the future of a lot of AI and healthcare collaborations. Uh, secondly, whether federal or state regulators would take a look closely. Third, whether they even would be able to take a look at these things all that closely. But one of the questions that I think is really critical here as well is a question of equitable benefit sharing. And it seems as though with this agreement, there's a lot of benefit to Google in terms of making its algorithms better, etc. It's not really clear exactly how much benefit is going to redound to uh, the royal free, etc. We know that for one relatively narrow application, with respect to kidney treatments, there will be care provided. But the question that I have to raise with respect to agreements like this is, will, say, other algorithmic uh, approaches to treatment, will those also be available uh, to the royal free in kind for free in perpetuity? Um, or are those going to be, say, the profit-making uh, mechanisms here? And I think without a much longer and more detailed conversation about exactly what the structure of partnership here should be, it's very hard to applaud these sort of partnerships these sort of uh, arrangements because we don't really know exactly how the benefits are going to be shared. What, what do you think of the fact that the information commissioner's report was only addressed to Royal Free and not to Google? I find that odd as well because you know we do have data protection regulation in Europe's specifically in the UK, that relates to data processors. And it seemed as though many of the things that should have been done by Google as a, or by DeepMind uh, slash Google as an information processor were not really followed up on here. And so to that, you know, I think that's also a critical question that's going to have to be raised in the future. And certainly that was on the minds of the folks that drafted high tech in the United States, you know, in terms of trying to make the types of duties that were traditionally incumbent upon covered entities also incumbent upon uh, business associates, subcontractors, 
factors all down the line. And that's going to be critical, I think, to the future here. You know, maybe maybe the uh, information commissioner was just being kind because it hadn't been a good week for Google uh, because uh, <laughs> they'd, uh, they got hit with a very large uh, fine, I think maybe the largest ever antitrust fine uh, that uh, the EU commission directorate has ever issued, I think 2.3 billion euros, wasn't it? The question I had for you uh, that I found quite fascinating because I, I don't know my antitrust and you do. Um, there was a, a, a really uh, interesting piece, I thought, um, a blog post by uh, someone I follow quite a lot, a business analyst um, uh, called Ben Thompson. And uh, he looked, he, he made the point, uh, which I thought was interesting, that um, while the EU antitrust authorities um, concentrate on monopolistic behavior and presume that to be illegal if it restricts competition, but in the US, he argues, um, there is less concentration on that, more uh, whether there is uh, an abuse of position or monopolistic or near monopolistic position and that the US tends to use prices as a sort of proxy for figuring out whether that happens or not and in the US there doesn't appear to be pricing spikes because of uh, Google practices and therefore uh, maybe uh, less likelihood of action anyway uh, I I posted this piece and, and you commented on it and I was very interested in your response which which was, uh, I think you said, well, you, you liked the piece as an introduction. You disagreed with a lot of the conclusions that Thompson had. And I'd, I'd really like to hear that. Oh, sure. And I think that these issues are going to come up a lot in the context of healthcare antitrust as well. Um, in fact, I just recall listening to this uh, very good conversation on um, Dan Diamond's podcast with the head of the Mayo Clinic criticizing some of the antitrust policy recently. But to turn back to digital antitrust and particularly to the Google case, I found a couple things troubling with the Stratechery uh, article that we'll link to on the show notes. One is that, you know, the, the, the writer seemed to be very concerned about the means of the European Commission and characterized their efforts here as an undermining of what is clearly the most efficient tool out there to deliver search results to consumers. And he tried to essentially say that, you know, if you can't demonstrate clear harm to consumer welfare, clearly higher prices, say, that that should be a real impediment to any antitrust action here. The problem that I see, though, is that it's really a matter of timing and it's a matter of how long-term your perspective is. So yes, you know, perhaps in the US, perhaps it would be ideal, let's say, for Google Weather to entirely take over the home screen of any mobile or even desktop device whenever someone, say, asks about weather. And it would be the only way in which you'd get information about weather. And that would be sort of this very quick utility. The question, though, is, is do you want Google to be sort of your permanent weather provider for, say, 5, 10, 20 years down the road, are we really confident that giving it the effective ability to strangle competition or the ability to reach audiences on, say, that vital piece of property, the first uh, page, that that's really what we want? And I think that the difference, one major difference between, say, the European and the American approach is that the American approach is often based on the sort of uh, mantra, we, we, support, uh, we support competition, not necessarily competitive. But I think 
big question that the European authorities would come back with is, how do you know if there's competition if there are no competitors? And so with that, I think, and this goes back to some of my earliest works on law and economics, where I was talking about sort of short and long-term perspectives in intellectual property law, in a piece called Toward an Ecology of Intellectual Property. I think the same issue comes up here, which is to say that the the Europeans have a long-term view and say, we've got to keep these very dominant firms from essentially suffocating, uh, preventing these other firms from reaching scale. Um, And the Americans say, look, if it looks good in the short term, who knows what will happen in the future? And hey, we buy into this sort of theory of Schubertarian destruction, you know, creative destruction over time. And eventually there won't be a Google. It'll be taken over by some other firm. It's a very different way of, you know, managing and approaching the digital landscape. And the problem that I had with the piece in Stratechery was that there was just this assumption that, um, say, the Europeans were not giving consumers what they asked for. When in fact, I mean, the very nature of search as a credence good means that very often people don't know even what they're asking for. And it's entirely appropriate for authorities to shape markets in certain ways in order to promote, say, innovation. Google's relationship with the EU, particularly the um, competition directorate, has has been an uneasy one. Uh, You've spent time in Brussels uh, fairly recently. Do you have a sense as to what the EU's endgame is here? I mean, is this going to be continual fines until Google sort of breaks up a little bit or what? Great question. You know, my sense is that there's a real divide among a lot of the folks in Brussels. I think that a lot of the technocrats, particularly even in the competition directorate, are quite sympathetic to Google. And they really see a lot of what, say, Google or Uber or other mega platform companies are doing as quite positive. And say, under the Macron government, certainly, I would see that Macron would be, I anticipate, a lot of uh, pro-big tech firm activity from, say, his appointees and people aligned with him. But I think also there is this international movement that combines both an economic perspective and political perspectives and that says, you know, we really can't have sovereignty unless we have relatively robust regulation of these uh, multinational corporations. And I think you see that sentiment not only in the European Commission's ruling, but also in a couple of Supreme Court cases that just came out of Canada, one of which required Google to obey a worldwide injunction imposed by a Canadian court with respect to taking down links to uh, a scoff law. Uh, IP infringement site, and the other which uh, said that Facebook could not use its terms of service simply to route all complaints against it to jurisdictions that were far more favorable to it, uh, sort of conflict of laws uh, decision. And I think if you combine all of those cases, what they show is that there's a very strong sense among a lot of legal and regulatory authorities that without some relatively robust action um, to rein in tech giants, that essentially they'll their entire economies will, in many important sectors, be uh, subject to firms that they have almost no control over and which are able to locate legal disputes to the places that most uh, favor them. So I just wanted to wedge one more data case into this discussion. Um, I don't know whether it will end up having um, particularly strong legs going forward, and I'll explain a little bit one of the reasons why the the, um, the law involved here is close to being so generous. But um, uh, this is a class action lawsuit uh, that started uh, back in 2014, 2013, 2014. It's in Alaska. Um, and it was a customer of a Texas-based DNA testing company um, who purchased this at-home genetics kit uh, for 
figuring out it was for figuring out your family tree sort of thing. Um, he joined a project allegedly um, and then was surprised when the results of his DNA tests were made publicly available, um, including a lot of information. Um, anyway, so it's a class action suit. Um, the interesting statutory piece, and I think this um, uh, ties in nicely with some of the discussions we had with Leslie Francis and John Francis in the last show. Alaska has a very specific genetic testing statute and says, for example, that a DNA sample and the results of a DNA analysis, I am quoting, by the way, DNA analysis performed on the sample are the exclusive property of the person sampled or analyzed. Wow. A very strong piece of legislation, a property model that we've talked about, and one that is generally viewed as uh, anathema to current uh, research uh, uh, issues similar to this came up with uh, regard to the proposed common rule changes and so on and the consent requirement that didn't make it into the final rule not that we really are sure that there is a final rule because the final rule has sort of disappeared somewhere (laughs) during the freeze and I don't know whether you saw the letter the other week uh, one of the big organizations or research organizations it was like a a plea a desperate plea to HHS please tell us where the common rule is 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 it alive is is it dead or is oh, it just gosh. still frozen? Uh, because we have to plan our research for the year and it would really be useful to know what law is applying. Anyway, so this is a somewhat uh, unique law. I think there are another maybe half dozen states that have something uh, like this. Uh, but it really does. It's a very strong uh, property model and uh, uh, very much, I suppose, is responsive to some of the famous stories that have come out over the last um, five to 10 years about abuse of genetic material taken uh, without any consent as to future use. And also, of course, on the property issue really does spin the more case onto its head, uh, the California case. Anyway, I thought I'd bring this up because one of the uh, defense postures in the case, apparently, is that the uh, Alaska statute is unconstitutional. And the the court just uh, granted uh, leave for the state of Alaska to intervene in the case and defend the constitutionality of its Genetic Privacy Act. So, as I say, I don't know how much of this you can really replay outside just a, a small handful of states, but it sure is uh, it's, it's sort of poking holes in a lot of the ways that we uh, we see business being done and and the so far rather anemic I think sort of legal responses to what's going on in sort of do-it-yourself genetic testing and so on. So many fascinating angles on that one Nick and you know it's funny because I just supervised a paper on comparing all the different states' approaches to genetic information protection and uh, the the student concluded that Vermont had the best uh, set of laws for those who really cared about uh, genetic privacy, but uh, I may have to compare uh, their analysis now with uh, what's going on in Alaska, which also reminds me of some of the great work of Barbara Evans, both on the front of her article, uh, Much Ado About Ownership, uh, sort of downplaying the idea of ownership as really being all that important to privacy regimes. And this seems to be a situation where it could be quite important. But then also, I imagine the challenge to the Alaska law, and I haven't seen this challenge yet, but 
I imagine it's going to sound something in the First Amendment, which again brings us to some of Barbara's directly opposite work on a First Amendment right to get back your genetic results. I was also talking to some folks about Maryland law, which is pretty restrictive with respect to this stuff. And there are some arguments out there, substantive due process arguments even, of uh, that people should be able to have access um, to this uh, to this material. But again, that doesn't get, get to the gravamen of the Alaska case, what you're bringing up, which is, yeah, quite, quite something. How would you construe that sort of property right? How would it, would it intersect with free speech rights? And probably what the court's going to have to look at is the bevy of law review articles and very few cases on conflicts between uh, intellectual property and First Amendment law. I think that Eldred was one of those cases where the Supreme Court took it on and Justice Ginsburg said that essentially the traditional contours of copyright law, you know, that if I can't you know, copy or recite your book in public that you have a copyright to because you, you don't give me that permission, she stated that you know, the traditional contours of copyright law don't offend First Amendment values because you have the right to uh, the idea expression dichotomy, that copyright only applies to the exact expression um, in the case or something substantially similar, of course, uh, and not to the ideas involved. And so I guess one critical question there would be, you know, does something like the idea expression dichotomy apply with respect to the information that would be encoded or otherwise sort of revealed in these sort of genetic analyses? Maybe that would be one way to get that uh, sort of law around a First Amendment challenge. But wow, fascinating stuff. <laughs> All right, on to a, a second topic, the opioid epidemic. And obviously, well, I certainly am not qualified to talk in depth about this. Uh, dear listener, um, if you need to know what's going on, just follow Leo Boletsky uh, from Northeastern on Twitter. Uh, but there were a couple of, uh, of points that, that came up that maybe were a little bit buried or a little bit uh, out of the way that I thought were uh, worth talking about. First of all, of course, a, a little light relief. The, um, the White House Opioid Crisis Commission misses its uh, due date for its preliminary report. The chair of that uh, commission, uh, Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey, apparently was on a beach somewhere, um, uh, and that that got delayed. But the uh, the piece I really wanted to talk about today was uh, the lawsuits that are being filed against drug makers and the drug distributors. This is now getting to be quite a serious uh, piece of legal business. There are like more than 25 states, cities, and counties that have filed uh, civil cases against manufacturers. Drugstore chains are getting involved. Attorneys general are bringing actions. And I thought it might be interesting to actually say, okay, beyond the headline of um, these people are all bringing these actions, what are they suing for? What are their causes of action? The only one I've sort of dropped into in any detail was the Ohio filing. And, you know, you can imagine the sorts of allegations of fact, misrepresenting the risks and benefits of opioids, uh, targeting susceptible prescribers, vulnerable patient populations, and so on. But the causes of action are quite interesting. Uh, and they should, if you're old enough to remember, they should remind you of the tobacco cases and also that small and 
and uh, ultimately unsuccessful attempt by some cities to go after gun sellers, uh, you might remember. So there are actions for products liability, actions for public nuisance, actions for breach of state consumer protection laws, Medicaid frauds in there, uh, along with common law fraud, and even the Ohio Corrupt Practices Act. The question, I guess, is do we see these as ever going to trial? Or is this, as some of the news reports, uh, the Washington Post in particular, uh, commentators saying, you know, it's going to be just like tobacco. The drug companies are never actually going to lose one of these cases, but checks will be written. Such a fact-intensive inquiry in all of these cases. But I certainly am sympathetic with all of these lawsuits because I think that there's the more that I study the political economy of pharmaceutical regulation and the role of some of the leading firms here in terms of promoting these drugs or promoting them off-label, etc., the more one has to be troubled by their actions and um, their effect on, on communities, devastating effects on communities. And by the way, I just wanted to bring up how horrific this has come, become. Apparently in Bloomington, uh, Indiana, there was a story recently that there were 15 calls for overdoses in one afternoon. And in one Ohio town, uh, given the number of overdoses, a uh, city councilor has actually proposed uh, an ordinance that would say three strikes and you're out. Once you've had Narcan to sort of revive a person after the third overdose, there would be no uh, no revival of them, which, you know, to me sounds like obviously a violation of Amtala or a violation of, of human decency. <laughs> but uh, and it's really sad to see that in uh, that was also a theme of this incredible Margaret Talbot article on uh, the opioid epidemic in West Virginia, where she was actually uh, discussed it with people who were at a softball game where a little, a little league game where two of the parents um, overdosed at about the same time. And some of the other parents were so angry angry at these parents for overdosing and ruining their kids' afternoon, that they yelled at the paramedics, you know, why are you even reviving them? Um, and so you you have a real problem here that is, you know, clearly needs massive investment, far more investment, certainly, than we're going to see in any of the uh, various bribe schemes that are going to be uh, tacked onto the uh, BCRA or HCA to get uh, Shelley Moore Capito or Rob Portman to vote for it. And uh, I just hope that we get some sort of very big response, because otherwise, it's, there's no way of getting a handle on this. Let's move on to everyone's favorite topic, health reform and or repeal. I thought you were about to say health ruin. I think that would have been appropriate. Health ruin? <laughs> health ruin is good. As we speak, Frank, we've had the July 4th recess. The reports in Politico today, for example, suggesting that we're not going to see a vote for the next week, maybe for two weeks. So it'll be just before, it'll be timed, if anything, for just before the, the August recess. And, uh, you know, going on from your point, I think we're, we will hear, or sometimes in the current climate, we won't hear about various backroom deals being made uh, for individual states to, as you said, increase opioid monies or whatever else. But there were a couple of, again, slightly offbeat uh, pieces that I wanted to raise. Um, although I'll start with something very general. You know, uh, if you leave aside for a moment, and we don't want to leave it aside, but just for a moment, the clear sort of tax cut paid for by Medicaid evisceration um, theme that we've been looking at since 
Representative Ryan uh, started uh, us down uh, a path that was no longer really about Obamacare, but was about a much more fundamental dismantling of welfare and other benefits. We're still incredibly light on the policies that people believe in here. I think you were in the same session as I was. It was a plenary at Atlanta. Uh, and friend of the show uh, and downright smart person, Mary Crossley, drew an analogy between public and private swimming pools. Sorry, Mary, if you're listening as I, as I do violence to what you said, but she says she has a slide early on in her health law class in which on one side there are a lot of people in a public pool and in another there's a picture of a whole neighborhood and each house has its own pool. And I'm sure I wasn't the only person who in the audience who immediately, as she was still talking, made a, a slide uh, with uh, those very graphics on it. Mm. So mm. clearly Ryan and the right, both in the House and the Senate, and alas, many in the middle, don't believe in government paying for the public pools. They don't believe in Medicaid as an entitlement or healthcare as an entitlement. And importantly, neither do they believe that the healthy should be in the same pool, this time in the insurance pool, as the sick. But you get there and clearly there is no majority, no true majority, unless it's being bought off, that we will go as far as that position. Policy politics suggests that there has to be something in the middle. And where the reform efforts seem particularly imperiled, come back to our old friend, the three-legged stool, uh, the one that the Affordable Care Act attempted to construct out of the individual mandate, uh, guaranteed issue, and subsidies. The Senate version two swaps mandates for continuous coverage penalties and tempts states to use waivers to essentially negate guaranteed issue by allowing policies that those with chronic diseases need but won't have coverage for. And then we have very recently the uh, Ted Cruz consumer freedom option. And the idea of this plan coming from the right is that insurers would be allowed to sell skimpy plans if they also sold plans that complied with the ACA and the three-legged stool. Um, and it just seems unbelievable to me that anybody who knows anything about healthcare policy and insurance could think that that would work because it's almost a blueprint for splitting the healthy from the poor yes. and therefore the pool cannot operate and you would see a disastrous insurance model. You're exactly right there, Nick. And one of the saddest things about this is that, you know, it seems as though, you know, at the beginning in November, we were talking about, wow, there goes Obamacare. You know, it seems like that's the ACA. A lot of the key financing parts of it are going to get gutted. Then when it became clear how far congressional Republicans were going to go, um, you were one of the first people that clearly articulated this is uh, an attack on LBJ care, at least Medicaid, the Medicaid half of it. Uh, Medicare for now appears to be off the table, though who knows for how long. But what we're also seeing now is that, you know, with respect to the state insurance markets, the degree to which these plans are just so half thought, quarter thought, not at all thought out with respect to those effects suggests that there's intent there. And the intent essentially is to unravel the individual insurance market. And this is really troubling because, you know, we know exactly how badly the individual insurance market was functioning as recently as, you know, 2005, 2006 or so. We know about the rescissions. We know about the sort of the, the, the ways in which it is so easy to have a sorting equilibrium result in, you know, a separation out of people by their likely health status, their age, et 
etc. And it's just bizarre to see federal legislation pushing for that unless the ultimate endpoint is something where you know, people are essentially each tub on its own bottom, each house with its own pool. Um, and the sad thing is that, you know, when it turned for Vox for to, to talk to um, whom they thought was of a reasonable conservative uh, a month or so ago, one of the first things they brought up uh, was a plan that was, I think, put forward first by a guy named Goldhill in terms of just having people or putting forth uh, HSAs or putting forth, you know, each individual household saves money for its expenses. And then if it runs into health expenses too early, it borrows against them, perhaps with something like a mortgage. And I think there's no mistaking that that's where we're headed if that's what happens here. And I also think, by the way, that also explains some of the lassitude of both the insurers and the even medical professionals with respect to their opposition to this bill. They all say that they're opposing it, but have we seen anything like the type of of just uh, stentorian rhetoric that we saw in the early 90s with respect to, you know, Hillary Care slash Bill Care, you know, Bill Clinton's uh, healthcare plan? We haven't. We haven't seen anything like Harry and Louise or these sorts of targeted ad buys. They're sort of standing by. And I think the reason why is because they're sort of sensing that in a nation of hyper inequality, maybe the key to future profits is not necessarily having everyone being in, in a large pool, but instead, you know, being able to basically charge carte blanche to uh, the richest, say, 10%, et cetera, and that that sort of charging would maybe make more money for them than um, systems, you know, that, that would be more universalistic. But you know, I'm sorry to go on there, but I just sort of feel that this is, uh, it really does portend an unraveling of lots of markets uh, this way. And I think there was also stuff that messes with the employer-sponsored plans. And that's also, I think, something we should talk about, which is with respect to employer-sponsored plans, there was talk about removing lifetime and even annual limits. Um, and that, again, is, a, or I should say annual and even lifetime limits. And that, again, is something that could lead to an unraveling of markets because you could easily imagine certain employers just gradually chipping away at the those lifetime limits, maybe it first starts at a million, then maybe 500,000, maybe, maybe two or 100,000, et cetera. And that again unravels the insurance market. And I think what we're really learning here is just how delicate the whole thing is and how susceptible it is to just being falling apart with, with bad regulation. There's there's one other point with regard to that, Frank, and and, and the sort of the, the poor level of discourse, um, something that I think is a little bit under the radar. Um, I mean, the true um, uh, health heads uh, uh, like Tim Jost and so on, uh, uh, this is this is clearly on their radar. But um, we see a fair amount of discussion about subsidies for the purchase of insurance through tax breaks or whatever in the House bill and also in the Senate bill. But there's very very little discussion about the other way that the ACA subsidized the purchase of healthcare on the individual markets, and that was with with regard to subsidies for cost sharing. Yes. And that piece just seems to have been forgotten somehow. Clearly, the uh, the GOP sort of price reduction model, uh, you know, we're going to make uh, insurance affordable for people again. Uh, clearly, that model does not cut costs. It pretty much just shifts them by reducing actuarial value. But the, the real penalty with regard to, for, for users, with regard to not having cost sharing subsidies is the sort of the really cool trick 
um, of, look, we've made insurance affordable to buy, but oh, by the way, you're too poor to use it. Now, that lipstick on a pig scam may work with the base, but I don't think it's going to work with insurance because they'll see that as a massive problem or involving instability in the markets. To try and compensate for that, they'll jack up prices further and that's a definition of death spiral. <laughs> I think you've hit the nail on the head right there. And I mean, yeah, the the ways in which, you know, this was such a complicated mechanism, the Affordable Care Act. And when we think about you know, the, the balance between the insistence on some level of individual responsibility and skin in the game, and yet on the other side, the role of the cost sharing reduction payments in order to make sure that those did not, that sort of responsibility was in some way keyed to someone's income was critical. And yeah, when I first read the Kaiser Health News, sort of chart that showed comparisons side by side ACA and BCRA or HCA and I saw just a zero a goose egg for the cost sharing reduction payments that was really surprising and then the question becomes I mean I think and again I don't want to get too far in the weeds here but I think I I did see something out there that said you know the insurers are going to be the way the the act is written is such that the, the people who are covered in the exchanges they are not going to be responsible for that full cost sharing and then it's going to fall on the insurer is that how it works? I mean, I, I just sort of... I, I mean, think so. I think so. And so what you move is you, you move from subsidizing the insureds to subsidizing the insurance companies. Ah, yes. Okay. And it's so interesting because in education policy, all of the effort on the sort of free market rights uh, agenda has been take away subsidies from institutions, have the money follow the students, you know, vouchers or the way student loans work and higher ed, et cetera. And so it seems as though, yeah, there are some companies, there are some institutions you don't want to sort of maintain in favor, like colleges or universities. But then, you know, when it comes to private insurance companies, wow, those are the real uh, cornerstone of the entire healthcare system, subsidize those, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, I agree with you. I mean, I don't get, I really don't understand it. I mean, I think it's just sort of, uh, it is again, one of these shell games where, you know, you take money away from one part, but then you ultimately, obviously people are going to try to chisel it away at another part. Clearly, you know, the rise of concierge care could be a way in which healthcare providers. So let's say that insurers go after the providers and say, oh, now we're not getting this money. So we're going to pay you less. Well, then providers are going to go after the insurers and go after other patients in certain ways. So, you know, we could imagine some sort of equilibrium where in the future, you know, after the dust has settled and after enormous uh, energy and time has been spent dealing with all of this, imagine a future where, say, the people who the burden has essentially been shifted from, say, investment investment income over a, mil, a, a certain threshold, $200,000, $250,000 tax on that, to higher premiums on people who are employer-sponsored plans, or perhaps to people that are have to pay for concierge care because they're waiting for a long time, etc. I mean, this is like squeezing a balloon. If you squeeze one part and try to get revenue out, it's just going to expand in another part. So, yeah. But I mean, certainly a lot of people are going to hurt along the way. So let me bring this to an end with a question to you. And here's my my setup to it. And uh, I will be satisfied with a, we'll just have to see, won't we? Answer. Moderately satisfied anyway. <laughs> but we, we've we seen polling data that was reported by um, uh, KFF over the last couple of days that support for a single payer healthcare plan continues to grow modestly such that there is now sort of a, a, a majority in fact. Um, we had a, a headline from the Washington Post uh, about a week ago, uh, quote, the biggest winner in the current healthcare debate, single payer. 
What are your wise words with regard to the single-payer suggestion? Is this a a fantasy land that uh, uh, is two elections away before we even get around to discussing it? Um, is it just posturing on the left or towards left towards the middle, um, hoping to bring um, current stakeholders to the table to make something more sensible? What's your overall read of the the single payer slogan? Should I be should I be making my single payer now sign uh, ready to go out on the march? Yes. <laughs> let me let me tell you why I've come to this rather definitive answer. Uh, it's been a long evolution for me as well over time, and I think here's just a few reasons why I'm pushing more and more in that direction. First, though, I guess I should concede that uh, as I may have noted in a, a past podcast, you know, plans like the California one still have a lot of work to be done in terms of of how you convince federal policymakers to make some fundamental changes to ERISA, and also how you try to convince folks, you know, how to 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 deal with uh, the the financing. And you know, Robert Pollan's paper from uh, UMass Amherst is very interesting on that. But I think still work needs to be done on the financing side. But that said. I think that single payer is seeming to a lot of people like the inevitable resolution of these sort of social conflicts for a few reasons. One is that the one interim uh, half measure or in-between measure might seem to be the public option, right? I've heard a lot of people talk about the public option, et cetera. And the problem, though, that I find is someone, you know, studying, say, the role of both private student lenders and private insurers in the overall political economy of the provision of healthcare and education is that when you have sort of a competition between public and private options, there is enormous pressure by the private options to, as they lobby, to make the public option worse, to make their own thing look better, or to sort of chisel away at the public option so that it eventually becomes just contracting for the private option. And that, I think, is the is a fundamental problem with public option schemes. Um, I think that, you know, the other side that I think is, is really critical here is just the fact that we need some pretty bold thinking, and part of that bold thinking is, you know, we were just just talking earlier about deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance, uh, cost-sharing reduction payments, etc. I just think there's an enormous mental relief that comes to people. You know, we've all met these folks. We've interviewed folks from different countries on the podcast outside of the U.S. that have something like single payer, or at least something that you know guarantees healthcare for all. An enormous mental relief in just not having to deal with this sort of shopping for plans and this sort of worry about what's covered and what's not. Is my doctor in network or not? And I think what the private insurers, if the if single Something like single payer is adopted in, say, 2020, 2024, you know, in the next decade or so. I think historians like our Christy Chapin, you know, if there's a Christy Chapin of, say, 2050 or 2060, they're going to write about private insurers and they're going to write about them, you know, secretly opposing the ACA, about all of the shenanigans that were pulled with respect to lobbying and trying to, you know, all the stuff with narrow networks and with out of network people and, you know, the games that were played then, um, the relatively half hearted opposition to the BCRA slash AHCA. And they're going to say, you know, that was a turning point where that industry essentially decided that they didn't really want to get with the program and make our private insurance system work. And they uh, deserved what happened to them at later, which would be to sort of a gradual obsolescence. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't come to that lightly because, I mean, as you know, you know, for over 10 years, I've been talking a lot more about things like the public option, about things like, you know, Medicare buy-in, bringing down the age or, or giving Medicare to people in their 20s, et cetera. Things like the Medicaid buy-in that we recently saw in Nevada. But I'm just very worried about the um, ability of robust public options to persist in an environment where the 
the politics of private entities trying to corrode the quality of public options, where that is such, uh, almost seems to be ingrained as part of the business model of these entities. I'm going to be spending the next 10 days in a country that uses a compulsory insurance model ah. for its uh, uh, universal healthcare system, and that has the most positive ratio of physicians to members of the uh, population. So uh, I hope everything goes well. And by the way, our, uh, since you haven't revealed the country yet, let's on our Facebook page, listener, try to guess the country. Although maybe it'll be too easy for us. <laughs> Way too easy. Way too easy. Particularly, particularly given the photographs I'm likely to be posting. <laughs> All right. So that was an incredibly long, Frank, even, even by our own rambling standards. Uh, that was an incredibly uh, long The Week in Health Law. Thank you for doing this. It was a great break from Pat. And, and thinking about other more menial uh, tasks. Great fun as always. Absolutely. And have a terrific trip, Nick. I hope Thanks. it sounds great. We post our show notes at twill.com and boy, there are going to be a lot of notes, aren't there? Uh, <laughs> yes. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Frank is... At HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us. I have no idea if you've managed to struggle through to the end of this one, but if you have, have a legally interesting but healthy week.